Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Busy, but good. Some exciting things happening over at ADR HQ. We've just announced that Prue Jones and Marella Marie are going to host some episodes in Melbourne, interviewing Melbourne creatives under the ADR banner. Yeah, this is really exciting. Something we've had in the works for a little while. Uh, we've always wanted to extend our reach south. We're a bit Sydney-centric, and that's just yeah. because we live here and we've got families and work and all that kind of stuff, and obviously not making it to Melbourne as much as we wanted to. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's lots of amazing stuff happening all around Australia. Um, so this is our first step in kind of widening the net to catch it all, like Pokemon. <laughs> we yeah. really wanted to find the right people to host and pundits in their own right, not just copies of us, and I think we found it in these two, so we're really excited. Yeah, Prue's been on the show a number of times, both on both sides of the microphone. She's a creative futurist, design and creative director at Fjord, national board director for Agda, like 20 plus years experience. Morella, founder and creative director of Vertigo, also founder and director of Womento. Um, she's got like 20 plus experiences as well. You know, Did you know she, um, she did a Bachelor of Criminology? Yeah, no, I did not know that. I had no idea. I don't even know how you found out about that. That's super cool. Um, it's going to lead to some pretty interesting discussions, I'm sure. And yeah. we're announcing them to join the crew this week. Uh, I think we've already done it on socials by the time this episode airs. And you'll hear the first interview coming soon. Super excited. Yeah, me too. Hey, before we jump into this episode, I just want to talk about Streamtime quickly, who's a major supporter of ADR and everything mm -hmm. we do. They have released a few really big updates recently. Uh, the ability to filter the to-do items and schedules by team, which is super important when you've got a ton of team members to schedule. You can also now group your items into phases, which is great when you've got a job with lots of deliverables and when it's becoming really hard to keep track of all the hours and dollars. Even some small changes, like being able to see when your invoice has been viewed, mm. like when you know they've seen the invoice, but the money still hasn't come through. So if this sounds like the sort of thing that you need, head over to streamtime.net and get all the information and a free account to try out the software. I like that. It's like when um, like Facebook introduced Red because it's like, yep. oh, they've already read it. All right, get back to me, you <laughs> jerk. I've seen that you've read this. That's a, that's a nice feature. I really like that. Who do we have on the episode? Joe McLeod, head of engineering, designer, author, 20 plus years in product. Like, why is everyone 20 plus years? Yeah. Anyway, well, we've got a long way to go. I know. I was super annoyed that I was unable to attend this one. I had, uh, I had some drama. I can't remember what it was now, but I was unavailable. And so you sat down and you talked a lot about his book, his time at Us Too, uh, his time at Nokia. I mean, it's such an interesting chat. I really loved editing it, actually. You, uh, you seemed a bit nervous. There were a few ums nervous. to heard about. No, probably a bit anxious. Like, I think when I'm doing it by myself, I have to play the Matt role and the Flynn role, which is I actually had to research. <laughs> but thankfully, you know, I, I knew a bit about us too, big fan of the studio and know a bit of the history and stuff like that. And Joe has a lot of info and, and talks on ending. There's some in the show notes, I'm sure. So Joe became obsessed with the, the end of the user journey, which is something that's very rarely designed for, which I find very interesting. And um, so we unpacked what a clean and considered edit ending should be and why offboarding is important. Uh, potentially more important or equally important as onboarding um, and how to sell that into the client, which I was my first question that I really wanted to ask. Yeah, I, I really like that you asked that question because it does seem like a hard thing to make the client understand. Like you've, you've just got them over the line to kind of like understand that they, you know, the, the, the job needs to happen and then mm. you're already talking about the ending. But having said that, when I first heard about his book, I, I guess I was intrigued, but a little bit confused. But after editing the interview, I, I went out and bought it straight away. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's really worth getting 
audible, of course. Mm, yeah, exactly. All right, shall we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. So you were the head of design and digital product studio, us two, for five years. We recently had Sinks and Mills on, which we'll talk about in a little bit. During that time at us two, you began thinking about endings. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, um, I had been thinking about endings quite a bit before that. So uh, probably about 15 years ago, I was, um, I'd was i done a short project about endings, which came about through experiencing um, a a sort of digital, I could say a digital product in very broad terms. It was a voice recognition avatar thing called Wildfire on your phone. And this was like early 2000s. And it was so awful. I'd uh, try and ring in and ask it to take messages or play me a message. And mm. So it would basically, essentially, when people left voice calls, messages, uh, you would go in, pick it up with this voice avatar. And they never really tested it in the wild. So I'd go, wildfire, um, play me my messages. And they would just go, sorry, I don't understand you. <laughs> and uh, this would happen on roads and stuff like that. So they didn't test it in the wild. Right. And I hated it so much. <laughs> it was the dream was so big and the disappointment was so enormous. I hated it. I, I wanted an emotional, satisfactory ending. I wanted to throttle wildfire until its horrible avatar eyes faded to black. <laughs> so it's very tragic. Yeah. yeah. And and serious it, stuff. It started to make me think a lot about emotional endings in consumer experiences. I didn't have the vocabulary at that point. I'd done a short project around around then in the sort of mid 2000, 2004, five, And then I went off, done my career and ended up at us too. And it's only really the last three, four years where I've dug into it properly and then really discovered how big an issue it is. You're hitting up UX Australia for some talks. You're doing That's some right. community-based stuff as well. That's right, yeah. I'll be, uh, there's a mega meetup tonight. I'm going to that. So that's the IXDA community, um, the design thinking community, uh, accessibility community, and the UX Book Club of Sydney. So that's quite a lot of people. Mm. And yeah, and then later in the week, it's um, UX Australia, which I, I think is a really big event down here. Yeah, it's it's absolutely huge. We've had some people on recently that are that are heavily involved, including founder of that. I just kind of want to go back to kind of your title, which I really love, and I haven't shared with you until now, which I saw was founder and head of engineering. Oh yes, which I thought was really cheeky, um, because without if if someone's skimming through your page, they might think it's a typo. But I thought it was really really cool. I. Uh I can't take the credit for coming up with that. Somebody right. came up with it on Twitter, but I thought it was so good. And I asked them, could I use it? So now I'd be, I've been using it on uh, my business cards. And it is, it's great because it, it's a bit of a double take and people start to think about things in a, in a different way. So it, mm. head of engineering, I think, makes us think a lot about like how do you create those things. So it was, it was perfect. Can you talk a little bit about like what you're doing today around sort of doubling down, drilling down into this idea of, of ending? Because sort of doing all these speaker tours and you've written the book which we'll talk about in a bit so are you focusing 100% of your time on this are you consulting as well yeah so uh for the last few years I spent I, once I left us two I spent two years sort of researching writing the book I, I actually swapped roles with my wife so um she went back to work and now mm. she's the breadwinner so I, I was sort of freed up to sort of dig into endings in a sort of research project also ha uh, hanging out with my kids a lot more which was super eye-opening in terms of uh, gender roles and all sorts of other things so it was a really great opportunity to uh, do that and so for the f last four years 
two of which were researching, writing the book. I'm pretty dyslexic, so I never thought I'd write a book after I left us two. I thought I'd dig into this project, which I thought might last six weeks. And mm. now four years later, I'm sitting here talking to you about endings. <laughs> uh, so writing a book was a really big challenge. It's an incredible learning curve. And then the book came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and then I've started touring around. So the, initially, it was about raising awareness of endings as a, in the consumer life cycle and what a massive issue it is and how we're not doing and grappling with this at all and how big a thing it is in society. Uh, the next, for the this year and maybe the next, I'll be doing more educational stuff. So I do workshops and going to colleges, universities, but also going to corporations and, and um, teach them how to do endings and, and give them practical tools about how to do endings in their business with their own products. And then uh, also consultancy, I think will happen like maybe next year because what's happened with raising awareness is people have gone, oh my God, I haven't really thought about that. And then they're like, how do you make an ending? Mm. And then, so it's raising my, my follow-up question is, yes. wow, that's a really interesting <coughs> thought. Okay, how do we unpack this? What do we do? Exactly. What's the actionable? And you imagine people yeah. at work, they're like, oh my God, I don't know how to start that and what do we do about it? So education is the next thing. And then the mm. consultancy thing, I think, will kick off. Yeah. But it's a massively hard slog. And yeah, so I'm going all around the world doing very manual things. Uh, so yeah, but it's lots of fun. Great meeting people and have, hearing stories about bad endings. Everyone has lots of examples that you can add to your repertoire, right? Y yeah, and also helping people like see their products differently and see what offboarding's about and thinking about aftermath targets and all sorts of other things mm. I've I've created as a toolbox to to help people. Yeah, that's great. I, I think we'll we'll get stuck into that a little bit. I want to rewind going through your work history. You worked at Nokia, so. What I really like about that is they're quite famous for having phones that don't have an end because they just they're indestructible, which was which was nice. And then you know, obviously working in the digital product space at us too, very famous for for being pioneers in that in that area. Like, what was it like working for Nokia then, and then and then going to a digital product agency? Uh, so working for Nokia was fascinating. I came in uh, when they were doing the N series products, right at the beginning of that. Uh, so they were sort of doing they called them high-end multimedia type products we were making a lot of products i mean the world was awash with nokia products we were incredibly dominant globally i mean when you think of people talk about apple's dominance but i don't think it's had a patch on nokia's because nokia's price point went from like 25 dollars globally entry market products up to you know hundreds of dollars um high-end e-series multimedia products there. And it was gigantic. We also had the period which was the Razor from Motorola. That was our biggest challenge. And one of the most interesting things in terms of um, market orientation, understand your consumer base. Nokia for a long time didn't know who they sold to as end consumers. They sold to mm. carrier markets. We would sell to Vodafone and we would ask Vodafone what type of product they wanted. And really? Then, oh, yeah, that's and, and it was yeah. actually incredibly damaging because we're very ignorant on a on a user ending mm. uh, a use end user um, knowledge. Um, once the razor started hitting us, they almost were starting to beat us for a, a short period of time, and we went away and looked at like what do we know about our consumer base? We undertook one of the biggest research projects probably on earth ever. It was like in millions of data points, hundreds of thousands and, and tens of thousands of interviews and questions globally across a whole incredibly wide market that Nokia covered from entry market to high end. 
And what came back was a very clear, and the whole company reorientated itself around that strategy. And we divided the company into like four business units, I think. And and then they came back, and we we um we became by far the most dominant again, which lasted probably a few years until Apple came along and. And you had the whole burning platforms sold to Microsoft, and I was mm. by that time I was out, but I was out <laughs> just before the burning platforms thing. So um, it was there was a lot of problems in that, and then yeah, moved to us too. So from being an incredibly big, very political, very hardware orientated, very uh, a fascinating company to work with, I moved to a company which was very hands on. It was really early days of um, mobile. So we were sort of doing wallpaper type thing. Not quite that bad, but, you know, we were doing very early graphic type stuff for Sony, Sony Ericsson. That's like every digital agency started by doing yeah, web banners. Yeah, exactly. But I think the difference, and one of the reasons I went to us too was because their, their can-do attitude. They had this attitude of, yeah, let's just do it. And mm. uh, they had the ability to build it as well. So we were really... We had all of the things in the right places and the attitude to just get stuff done. And uh, I was very attracted to that coming from a massive corporate. Mm. So started there, like I was there, I think, five years. Uh, when I started, the design team was about 30-odd people. When I left, it was 100. So that's a that's a big job. And it's huge, yeah. Yeah, and I, it was a long way from the day-to-day design. One of the reasons I left, really, it was just it wasn't much design anymore. But, yeah, mm. it was a fascinating and fantastic uh, company to work with and um, very nostalgic about it sometimes. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty wild journey. And, um, you know, we've had Mills has come to, to Sydney and given a talk, and people will have seen this. There was a period of time there, according to one of Mills's graphs, I think he had 400 slides or something. And, <laughs> yeah. And one of them um, you know, blew everyone away. Creative mornings away, but um, one of them, one of them was a little bit about how. And correct me if I'm wrong yeah. here, because you're in management, so you know this for sure. Was <laughs> the main business supporting the the games team? Yeah, yeah. Al- almost to try to hope that we get this, you know, golden egg, yeah, um, this silver bullet kind yeah, of yeah, thing, yeah. which is a little bit kind of impossible, and you shouldn't really chase that sort of thing. But they kind of did, and and kind of supported it. And then Monument Valley came out, yeah, of that, which was hugely, yep. hugely successful. Um, I'd just be, be really interested about, you know, if I was a fly on the wall during during a little bit of that time. It sounds like a very fascinating it time. Was, it was a great time. Out. We used to use, because everyone sort of burns out on projects, so we'd have a, a period of downtime where people would be able to investigate or work on other sort of like more interesting, like, you know, not a banking product. Maybe you'd right. get an opportunity to like work on something a bit more, maybe risk oriented around like let's create a game, for example. Mm. So we used to do that and we, and we put money into the, into um, that, and we bought out uh, Whale Trail was the f- first oh, sort yep. of big game. We like on lots of levels, we nailed that, and it sort of was like a, a like a blip on the landscape of like gaming, uh, mobile gaming. Mm. Although we'd done really well on so many levels with that, it really opened our eyes up to how little we knew about proper game design, mm. game um, artistry, game management, and stuff like that. So. From the money we got on on the whale trail, we we uh, got in some new people and started to take it seriously. And that's when um, Monument Valley came along. So the the games team had got bedded in properly. We looked looked to them as a proper team, and and we didn't put people from other skill sets onto the games team to mess around with it. We took it really seriously then. Yeah, and then and then that sort of level of seriousness came across, and and Monument Valley came out and. Uh, 
and that was well crafted for a long period of time. It was mm. took a long time to get that right, and then once it launched, it I, people really appreciated it. You know, they saw that craft and really believed in it. Yeah, absolutely. It's be- obviously a beautiful game, like super yeah. successful. You mentioned being dyslexic before, and um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that very quickly before we go and get to get to the core of, of your ri- sure, your current sure. reason yeah, for yeah, being. Yeah. Um, I find it uh, interesting for our audience and also for myself. Um, Matt was recently in the UK and yeah. had a very small window of opportunity to interview a few people, yeah. and with Mark Stott uh, and Pip Jamison, yeah, yeah. Um, who we found out that we both know which is really lovely. And during that episode, Pip was talking about that she used to hide away from yeah. being dyslexic. Yes. It's it's, yep. a, it's a thing to hide away from. It's not accepted. Yeah. And that would cause problems, yeah. um, which she didn't elaborate on, but we can kind of, you know, you can kind of piece it together because oh, we totally, all might have totally. something like that. And then she sort of steered into it. She yeah. has it in an email signature, delightfully yeah, 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 dyslexic. Yeah. You know, when, when I listen to the episode as a listener like everybody else who's listening to this one, I really like that because um, I'm an extremely colorblind person yeah. working in the design space yeah, and yeah, not yeah, too many yeah. people might, might no. know that. And I just wanted to see if you had the same sort of realization at some point being public about being something like dyslexia, if that has been beneficial in the same way that perhaps Pip was thinking. Absolutely. I So I, I went to a pretty rubbish school anyway. So I, and you'll find a lot of dyslexics. In fact, a lot of people with any learning disability will, will um, put, um, create crutches with it. So they'll be able to either hide it or mm. like work around. So they're very adaptable. I always used to get school reports when I was younger, which was like, Joe's not very good at this. Joe's won't be very good at this. But he's very polite. And he's very <laughs> nice. And it was all these like, Real sort of, uh, and and this is the problem is partly that we've got this bias around creativity, and you see it even it's actually going further the wrong way in the UK, I think. But the um, our approach to um, creativity is a very sort of like um, almost patronising approach, I think. Mm. The academic approach and um, dyslexics find obviously very very difficult. But when I I didn't find out, I sort of knew. I people said, "Are you dyslexic?" And I actually made some really bad posters on many occasions because of my <laughs> dyslexia. I've done that a few times. But so I knew roughly it might be there. And uh, I, it was only until I was doing my MA and my thesis got handed in, and the guy said, "I can't even read this, let alone <laughs> mark it." And I went down and done a dyslexic test, which is fascinating to do actually. Because yeah, um, what is involved? So they'll give you lots of different tests. There'll be nonverbal reasoning tests, reading tests, memory tests, um, and it takes I think two or three hours. And so I went. I was in. Uh, I was at the Royal College at the time, which is in South Kensington, just down the road from the National Dyslexic Centre in in the UK. And so I went down there and and done these tests. And um, this guy assessed me, and then uh, and he, he wrote a really great letter, which I love. It says. Uh, Joe's profoundly dyslexic, which don't you think that's a fantastic way to be dyslexic? Yeah. I am profoundly dyslexic, yeah. not regularly. <laughs> <laughs> and it said, um, like, he's in this top percentile of slight ed- intelligence. Cause, so all the time you've been told you, all your life you're stupid, because I'm sure all dyslexics have this in common. I'm, yeah, you're really, s- I was called Slow Joe at school, and this is a, not a great school. <laughs> Rough. Yeah, so it, it was um, really eye-opening. And ever since after that, I've been able to like counter that by learning how to do things uh, and knowing full well I've got dyslexia. And I, I do consider it an enormous superpower. And I think it's going to be more and more valuable in the future as we 
move, you know, automation is going to crush academia or, or like those academic subjects more right. uh, quicker than it is going to crush raw creativity that dyslexics have. Another thing I found out was well, my dyslexics teacher told me, or the person who um, analysed me, he said, uh, you'll find dis- most dyslexics are in prison and then the next most are in art college. <laughs> and I think that says a lot about how society deals with right. dyslexia. Right. And it's quite scary, I think. You know, talking about education again, I was, I was saving this, yeah. but I actually think we should talk about yeah. it because you brought, you did bring it up. Include design campaign. Yeah, and actually, one <laughs> making that link, uh, one of the reasons I was so passionate about it is that I see dyslexics having a tough time, but like you, you have an outlet in creativity, and that isn't just like the design creativity or art creativity. It's all sorts of creativity, mm. with, from music to pottery to whatever there is opportunities there and when i saw that getting taken out of core education and reduced in its value i was it was so disappointing because i i think that's going to sort of impact on prison numbers you're going to see like people who are going to be more and more frustrated in not having outlets to their creativity being having short and short opportunities at school and you know you can imagine the alternatives is um so for the audience the include campaign include um, design include design sorry campaign um was was something in the uk was kind of spawned out of some government changes came through around 2013 and this was a response yeah so in the conservative government they wanted to reduce the value of creative subjects and core education and and increase the importance of academic subjects like um, Mm. english math science etc and a lot of the high arts let's say um, drama and the arts world and etc had gotten together and they were writing articles in the telegraph about it and no one was really coming from the design industry in it and us too we used to get politicians come around our studio all the time like oh this is great this is what the future of britain's about there's this uh, these digital sort of product studios and they were bore on about their same old thing um totally ignorant to the amount of people in that room which had come from creative background had valued creativity and so we were really angry about this and uh, we thought we'd get a few of the sort of the Shoreditch uh, uh, businesses together which are similar sort of digital product businesses to us and and um, we we thought we'd write a letter, you know, as you do in politics. We thought we'd write a letter mm-hmm. and we'd, we'd send it to the government. And we'd done that in an afternoon. We got like five groups together. And then somebody told the design council and we chatted to them for a bit. And then we got some more. Pe- and within a week, we got like VIPs of like the Illuminati of the design industry. Uh, we got loads of businesses and it's just kept rolling mm. and it got bigger and bigger. Then got together with the music in- industry and start to lobby with them, put loads of pressure on. We'd done loads of campaigns. We were trending on Twitter on a couple of occasions with stuff. And, uh, yeah, it, it was exciting. Very depressing, though. Dealing with politics is incredibly depressing. What's depressing about it? Is it because you're trying to change their mind and they're closed? Or it's, had they it, already made their mind up? It, yeah, it's the ignorant point they come from and the short-termism that they're Therefore, so the ignorance comes from if you, you imagine you're head of education and you've just moved from prisons, for example, you imagine how much knowledge you really have, and then you've got right. to come up with an exciting new strategy for the conservative educa- education policy, and you've got to come up with that in like 10 minutes, but mm. you've had no previous knowledge mm. about education. And then, so they're under short term ignorant roles, and then they'll smash through everything. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a 
We could talk a long time about politics in the UK. <laughs> so <laughs> it's so messed up. So the same good. gang that are doing this now. Yeah. Anyway, but it was good. Like for like, I think fourteen months we ran it. Uh, we did get them to stand down, and then they done it by the back door anyway. So right. it, it's yeah. I was going. Oh, well, my follow up was you know six yeah. six years later. Yeah, they said so they'd done it they, any, they anyway. Did it anyway, found it, another way to do yeah. it. Yeah. But by the end of it, we had like 400 of the country's biggest design companies mm. signed up to the campaign. Had uh, Johnny Ives, Stella McCartney, some big architects, all sorts of people. Mm. It's an amazing campaign. But yeah, I'm so, I was sort of glad it was over. I, I mean, campaigning against politics. Is, <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, it has to end. Yes. Uh, which is a great segue exactly. into why you're here in Sydney um, and to talk about to talk about ending. So ending in, you know, consumer experience primarily. A lot of your examples, which I found very useful, were physical examples and things like that in some of your talks that, yeah. that I watched. And just sort of, yeah, really explaining it to everyone. So you get a chance to do an elevator pitch after this. So my understanding yeah. of it, it's the idea behind the end of digital products, the end of the use of our data, the end of relationships, services, businesses. So number one, did I get that right? And number two, when did the idea of designing for endings dawn on you? Number one, yeah, it covers products, services, and digital. It's all consumer experiences. And one of my big points about this is that we've got to go a long way back in history. I'll go like 400 years back in history to the plague as a starting point. So, Speaking of endings. Yeah, so speaking of endings, the, the trauma of the plague started loads of different things happening. One of those was the um, emergence of the new challenger religions, which was the Protestants. And right. they... They brought about lots of different changes, three of which were an end to fasting. Organized fasting happens in most religions, but the Protestants, Martin Luther, removed the organized fasting out of the religious calendar in the Protestant religion. The The ability to reflect on your own abundance is key to right. us mm. trying to change. But having that removed out of the core, the religion that was driving in sort of industrial revolution a bit later on, a few hundred years later on, it also introduced the ability to invest in your business so that um, circle of growth, investment, growth, investment mm. is a sort of manifestation very early on in the Protestant religion. And the, the Catholic religion at the time was interested in only three careers. That was a pope, a priest, and a nun. Right. And uh, the Protestants removed that so you could become have any job. And if it was being good in the eyes of God, you could have that as a career. So you're getting the beginning of the career path, beginning of investment in business and the um, reduction of reflection about abundance in 300 years ago. Mm. <laughs> so that sounds like I'm got, I've gone way back. But actually, it's, it is important to make sure we... The problem with the environmental sustainability issues at the moment is that we talk so short-termist about it and we talk about it on a materialistic level. Right. And we've got to change that. To, it's deeply rooted in our society, this um, this consumption. And we've got to go back and start to reframe that bigger thing. So, yes, to go come back on it, product, service, digital, everything about consumer the consumerism. Mm. Your observation makes sense yeah. and is interesting. But what I'm understanding is you're more or less campaigning to design and to think about it yes. and convince stakeholders. Yes. You can tell I've been working yeah, with corporates yeah. recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, to convince stakeholders that there's value in this. Yes. Um, so, which has a follow-up question. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> way back when I was doing the wildfire thing, um, you know, I was experiencing like 2005, experiencing how 
how bad some endings were that I was personally experiencing. And I I knew there was something wrong with that. And I knew I, did, I wasn't having a very satisfactory emotional ending with those products and services. And I realized that I also didn't have a vocabulary to communicate and understand what I was feeling. So I'd done a short project then. It was very shallow, really. It took a few weeks, but it, it didn't really unveil the the stuff that I've unveiled more recently. So like a few years ago, started to dig into it again. Went back into like the, obviously the experience of death is common amongst all of our endings. But it was an important place to start because so much of our relationships with life and death uh, focus around religion, endings in terms of your, uh, how you end life and how you might um, off-board life in terms of your deathbed and reading religious things around. That used to be a very different experience than we have now. Mm. And going that far back, you're able to look at it in a far different way and then frame it in a far different way. So once the beginning of sort of industrial, in the Industrial Revolution where we're starting to create enormous amounts of products at scale, and selling and understand a lot about marketing, we start to see that emerge in in those sort of um, modes and those themes start to emerge and grow. And if we don't think way back that far, I, I think we're going to lose the some of the core principles of how we're going to grapple with climate change. Mis-selling, for example, in financial services or or um, like undermining our own personal reputation online. Because it's mm. these are all connected. Sustainability is only targeted at the product consumption, but we've got to start thinking. All of them have the same componently, the com same problem with off-boarding and ending. Mm. And that's, in my mind, why it's so important. And that's why I've become this massive evangelist of it. I could have mm. gone out and got another job yeah, you know, in uh, in another product digital studio, and uh, but I, I believe this is one of the most important things. I wonder if you're are you designing an end for your campaign of ending? Uh, and the reason I ask you that is because yeah. just before we started, we we started going live. We were talking about I'm um, relating your you know what you're talking about to my experience, and um, I have done some volunteer work, community based stuff, and I always have found with anything like that there is a shelf life. Yeah. And I've never designed an ending to that. Yeah. They've always ended a little bit too late, where yes. I, sh I probably should have given up a bit earlier yeah, yeah. for various reasons. Yes. Um, yeah, but yeah. usually it's that you cannot sustain this for yes. a, certain amount of, exactly. a certain amount of time. So, yeah, I'm just curious. Are you, are I, you thinking about, I'm going to do this for five years and then put a pin in it? Or I, I totally agree. And I do think about that quite a lot. Mm. How, is this what I, sh should I be carrying on doing this? And for one, I think it's super important and we've got to get a handle on like the way we consume. And it's not just about the climate change, it's about everything. Uh, for the, the second point is that the first book that came out was very much about the philosophical, sociological, historical components of why endings are a big problem in society and why they're critical to how we improve consumption. The next book that I'm halfway through is more of a practical business, um, how to build good endings, why they're important, how to change your business. So it has, for example, we operate a single engagement model in lots of businesses, which undermines our ability to have um, a, a more reflective, uh, more positive consumer experience mm. and things. Uh, so I, t I talk about um, strategy in businesses. So can I backtrack? Can you explain that single onboarding? So the single engagement, engagement model, model is what we what we have created from the industrial revolution, and it means that uh, we're going to 
find a customer and they're going to be with us in a permanent relationship forever. That's the assumption of a lot of businesses. Right. That's why we end up putting things like um, retention techniques in place to stop people ending and stop people leaving. The incredibly out-of-date approach because not only on the digital side we're turning consumer relationships off and on on servers we don't meet and when we on board or start a consumer relationship that's through a server a website and yep. it's instantaneous uh, we end up asking people to ring up for example a, a salesperson at, to leave a business right quitting a gym yeah, quitting a gym is a good example. Mm -hmm. uh, like Sky, up until a few months ago, we were asking people to ring a salesperson up for an over an hour mm. to so they wouldn't leave. I believe Zipcar, you can only you can only um, leave mm. by phoning them up. And there's lots of businesses that do that. And the paranoia around a customer leaving should be a lot more about like um, we should be considering multiple engagement models. So. Think about your business in a 10-year cycle and you want to have maybe three engagements with a customer. They might do two of those engagements with someone else. But if you're hitting like a three out of five, let's say, right. then you should be, that's where we should be looking. And then if you're thinking about multiple engagements, you've got to start thinking about endings. And if you're thinking about endings, you're thinking about opportunities for the consumer to reflect improve the damage that's done through consumption and to build a much better environment around not only a physical environment, the ecosystem, but like a, a service environment and a digital environment. Yeah, I, I sort of brought it up before, but thinking about being in that infamous meeting room and convincing someone to spend a portion of their, of their budget on an offboarding process. Yeah. Uh, let's let's take digital. Yeah. Very high end. You know. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, yeah. clever digital people uh, who create digital products often out of the equation here. But I'm talking about yeah. banks, financial services, yeah. any SaaS exactly. product, all that sort of stuff. I'm obviously it's a challenge and it's going to change case by case. But, but how is how is that conversation? You know, trying to trying to show value and it, it's incredibly hard. Yeah. So it takes me uh, it takes me a little while to talk people into like again. It's about raising awareness, mm. education, and then the consultancy. So right, get, it takes me a little while to talk to them and make them understand about what I'm what an ending is. Yeah, and then I mean, on a very hard nosed business level, you've got examples in digital for uh, Netflix, for example. They're proud of their easy come and go type right. of approach to their mm -hmm. customers. They're one of the biggest in the world. Comparably, as a consumer experience, watching TV in your classic sort of cable company, they've had customer satisfaction going down for 11 years. They're down at like the high 60s of consumer satisfaction. Netflix up in the high 70s mm -hmm. of consumer satisfaction. One is doing a positive ending and seeing their business grow and grow and grow every year and people are paying a lot less for that and really enjoying it. The other is you can go on Twitter or like look at consumer reviews of cable services and they're mm -hmm. hopelessly bad and very, they disappoint people a lot. And one's approaching ends positively and one's really paranoid and offer retention techniques. So is it through those examples that these are yeah. in the toolkit to explain, hey, you know, look at this old, Absolutely. Old way of thinking and then look yes. at this new way of thinking totally, market leaders. Totally. Yeah. Another example I do is there's a woman who, who's a researcher called uh, Helen Rosa Barr and she was a nun once and she left 
being a nun, she became a user researcher. She kicked the habit. Yeah, she kicked the habit. And uh, she she was really interested in people becoming an ex. So it's mm. a role, exiting a role, like we were talk, talking about really, in terms of when do you know when's the right time? And there is a moment that a lot of people experience in role exit, which is the, the crack of doubt, I call it. And I do exercises around the crack of doubt. And it's the beginning of the end. Really, it's that very, a very subtle, usually it's an experience of an event which didn't quite go as you imagined mm. in fact a lot of people relate to it in early relationships where they went mm, that was a weird behavior thing my partner done and then right. like a few months later you're either dumping them or they're dumping you oh and you think back and you think you know what if i could put yes a, exactly. a moment it was yes. that was the beginning so Interesting. The, cr- the crack of doubt yeah. is actually used in the biggest sales channels in the world are mm. um, price comparison sites and they use the crack of doubt as a method of pulling in a consumer that puts up like a price comparison for, for example, an energy supplier or a TV supplier or whatever supplier, and they'll offer up that, they'll then, the price comparison site offers up just the crack of doubt, and they'll crack that open, mm. and the doubt will start to emerge, and you'll see benefits that you didn't get on your current platform or your current service, and then they'll squirrel you away real quickly into a new role, new a new relationship with a new bank or new mm. provider. And that's the biggest sales channel. A lot of industries have lost out their sales channels to price comparison sites by not really being so scared of the ends, they can't um, can't grapple with it. They're so dodgy, those sites, aren't they? Because they only, they not all of them, but presumably there's a, there's a model there where they, they gain the trust and then they only show clients essentially or they only sh- yeah there are some which a- just have a, a limited uh, bunch of offerings mm. but um but i think in terms of a technique it's really important that those industries should have been grappling with that themselves right. if they were open and honest about endings they could have started to design and develop um, techniques to mm. help people at that at that end i love some of your examples you know there was a physical example which i think a lot of graphic designers in our audience will, will kind of appreciate there was a printing example there's all that gibberish on printing, and you were using an example of your Epson printer. Oh yeah, and um, and there was a bunch of icons, and you showed it at, at the conference. I can't remember the talk off the top of my head, and you're sort of asking everybody in the audience. And I'm assuming this is a design crowd, not yeah, necessarily yeah, yeah. straight up graphics, but yeah, yeah, yeah. at least designers. And um, no one knows what it is, yeah. which I really loved because the whole purpose. Do you of mean that, the wheelie bin with a cross? The through. wheelie bin with a cross through it, um, and um, and I'm I'm stepping on your your point a little bit here because I really enjoyed. What is this? No one knows what it is. What am I supposed to do with this information? Don't throw it in the bin yet. And now what? Exactly. Which no I really one, like. No yeah. one can do a don't. Don't do don'ts. <laughs> <laughs> no one can do a don't. Yeah, you, do, you don't know human can. It's unactionable. One of the yeah. key components to making good endings is to make them actionable. So mm. on the back of uh, most consumer electronics, you'll get in the, in the certainly in the European Union, is the, the wheelie bin with a cross through it. And it's the we directive symbol. And it's meant to be for any uh, reseller, manufacturer, and um, importer to allow an opportunity for the consumer to bring back a product into that manufacturing environment to be dismantled appropriately. Mm. Now, I've I ask, like you've pointed out, ask it every time I do a talk, and <laughs> I reckon I've talked to maybe between five and seven thousand people in the last two years. Let's say. I've met 15 people who know what that is. It's meant to be consumer-facing, and everyone reads it as like, don't throw it in the bin. Mm. No one can action, don't. (laughs) So what do you do? 
Absolutely love it. Um, another example as well you used, you, you t- spoke about the, the Netflix example of, you know, good version was the Spotify example. Yeah. Which I've never done because yeah. I just love that service yeah. so much. But I absolutely expect that I'll be able to leave Spotify and come back and all my songs would be there and it would be easy and it wouldn't cost me anything for, for leaving. Yeah. And I think they leave you like your most played songs or they but leave no, you They send you a playlist, which is like, don't leave me this way. Um, right. If I can't have you. <laughs> no, there's some really good things about endings. There's another thing around GDPR, which means that a lot mm. of our endings have to be a lot more conclusive. So GDPR, at least in, in Europe, and it has manifestations all around the world, mm. has is one of the most empowering things for consumers in endings. It's offered consumers three really clear digital paths for endings in terms of a right to be forgotten, so erasing all of your data, uh, your ability to remove consent, which is no one leverages that. And actually, I don't think consumers understand what that means. And is uh, the opportunity to share your data with other providers, mm. which is sort of like the crack of doubt, the um, price comparison site stuff. That those three things are not communicated much in the GDPR discussion. Everyone's talking about how great it is in security and other things. We're selling mm. GDPR and not talking about endings that are empowered by GDPR. So, the, yeah, there's loads of stuff in digital which isn't talked about in um, as endings and empowering consumers. Just very quickly, what you think there might be psychological inf- impacts of our lack of experience with endings? Humans really like endings in other formats the only if you look at consumerism and the consumer journey it's the only sort of narrative structure that humans have made which has no ending it's no bedded in ending Mm. humans love narratives we've been telling stories in caves handing down very important moral guidance and information guidance for for people for thousands and thousands of years before we invented books so we love stories and we love the ending is profound and important and meaningful of that. So there is hope that we have these tools, but we don't use them in the consumer life cycle. We've developed a psychosis in all of us. I, I talk about this is we are so excited about onboarding and usage that we've got this consumer self, which is in all of us. I love consuming stuff. I like buying stuff. I like thinking about buying stuff. I can read adverts and I like thinking of myself in adverts. And it's developed this very powerful, very uh, intense experience at that point. And then we've got this civil self that reflects upon the environment and reflects upon damage and reflects upon parts of society that don't work very well including like the fallout of bad consumer problems these individuals are all of us and we have this psychosis between both of them which never has the opportunity to come across one another so when i'm for example i jump on a flight down to australia takes 20 hours i've dumped god knows how much carbon in the atmosphere right I'm really concerned about that. But at no point throughout that journey, that consumer journey of me buying tickets, me getting on an aeroplane, me having like hours on that aeroplane, getting off the aeroplane and and going to my hotel, have I been exposed to what that might be in terms of damage and carbon? Have I been exposed to uh, an opportunity to reflect about that? Have I been exposed to the opportunity to action Mm. um, a counterpoint to that and, and, and undo some of the damage that I've done? And these are the type of things that we need to build into the system and that we need to join that consumer self and that civil self back to, to back together. What impact, you know, if any, um, do you think kind of the fail fast Silicon Valley 
build it, ship it, get it out there has done to impact this. And the reason I ask is is because as we're talking about this, there's so much digital garbage. I mean, yep. like the internet is like there's just yep. so much. There's like bags flowing in the wind and yep. all sorts of stuff. It, it's a, it's a mess out there. Like, do you think this idea of just build it, see if it sticks, throw it against the wall. If it sticks, great, we'll move on. If it doesn't, who cares? Whatever, move on. Do you, do you think this kind of mentality is kind of like also impacted the idea of things having this nice story, this nice beginning, middle, and end? So on the if, num- we're, if we're constantly just starting stuff, I, I think it on a number of different levels. It's um, so on one level, the startup community and the way that we've been churning through different um, solutions and and offering different products to consumers has they celebrate fail fast. That's for the founders and the people in product development. For the consumers, it's actually really not that much fun because mm. you'll sign up, you'll be passionate about a product or service. They'll be bought out. They'll fail. Or, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, and and you're going to end up having and and I have, and I'm sure all of your listeners have, got loads of products, service, digital products that they've left lingering because that company's failed or something. So there's a component of like loss for the consumer. It's great that we're talking about failure in a positive way because I think that's helpful mm. for a, in a bigger sense us to reflect on things. And it's uh, we've got far better feedback culture in in some of that. But it's so, we've driven it so hard in a short termist thing, and the startup thing has driven us further and further into this. It's only for today, mm. and you see that like scooters littered around different capital cities around the world at the moment yeah we're we're only we don't have scooters here yet but it's all the all yeah. the bikes yeah yeah um we've got peak scooter in stockholm yeah i'm sure that i'm sure that's coming here yeah um seen it around the world yeah we were talking about um doing a talk um and a workshop i'm really interested particularly at something like ux australia because presumably 90 percent of the audience 99 percent of the audience are ux practitioners and those interested in yep. that area yeah from service design, operational design, all the way to people in the in the trenches designing yeah. designing buttons and things. You know, what does a workshop on endings look like, and how do you finish it? Although I speak a lot in the UX community, the end stuff is really applicable everywhere. So yeah. I've talked at um, like consumer lending conferences, which are full of um, people like banking people and mm. people who are looking after people from charities that are about um, bad debt paying and stuff like that. So it stretches as a as a theme across all sorts of industries and um i think ux and design have big roles in this we're very sensitive to emotions and i think we we love these stories that we can tell around a lot of the consumer experience so endings is a good place for that in terms of like doing a, a endings workshop it goes through um components of the consumer life cycle so endings don't just happen at the big at the end of the consumer journey you have to really load con- endings in like right at the beginning for mm. example the transaction model the type of transaction will characterize the rest of the consumer journey in terms of empowering or disempowering the consumer so for example there's five different transaction models that we commonly use one is payment before service one is payment but after service one is scheduled payment which you might use in like a utility companies you schedule payment out of once a month a continuous payment, which is when you go into a shop, you transfer like a, you know, get a can of beans for some money, currency. We now do that in digital with like but mm. downloading films, for example. And then you've got continuous observation, which is what we do when we sign up for something like Google Maps is a, essentially you click the T's and C's button. You've 
basically signed up. That's the transaction moment. And when you pay, for example, after receiving a meal at a restaurant, so payment after delivery, you have loads of leverage as a consumer and you um, are able to have a very open, very honest conversation because you've got all of the all of the power. Mm. If you pay before, for example, on a train, uh, and that train's late, you've got nothing to right. come back on. Mm-hmm. So way, the way you characterize your business around the transaction model very much characterizes everything, empowers mm. everything. So when you come to the end, for example, have you got an open, honest, empowering relationship to have good feedback in your business? Or have you just neutralized all that and no one really knows they've ended and it's very awkward and difficult for the consumer? So there's there's loads of examples like that I do in the workshop, which exercise ideas around consumption, around uh, things like transaction models and different types of endings. There's roughly seven endings that are developed across um, all products, services, and digital. And then we go through exercise of how to predict different dates of endings because how a, how a product ends and what if it's a long-term type of ending or a short-term thing, you can design different ways for it. And things like designing for an aftermath. Most designers design for usage. Mm-hmm. That's partly the problem that we... Uh, encouraged in education and in products and 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 clients are also encourage us to design for usage not design for aftermath but if you design something for aftermath like the consumer's perception of after they've left your product and service and they are delighted with your product and service that's a very different world to design for than design for usage which is uh, essentially like passive <laughs> i could probably talk to you all day about this i think but um you are running across town to go talk. Yes, I am. Soon, so I've got to make sure that I don't take up too much of your time. I think the next step is is to read the book. Um, and you also recorded an audio version. Yes, yeah, so there's an audio book. Which is right book. up my alley. Yeah, you should, um, you can see the audio book is on Audible. So should, I mean, uh, it should be on almost all Audible platforms. You can, if you go onto the website, uh, andend.co, uh, not .co.uk, just .co, mm-hmm. There you can find the book and all of its different sources. Uh, the book is on audiobook, ebook, and paperback. And also, I was going to offer you uh, the ebook, so some some of your readers can download that. Oh, cool! Great. So we'll have a code, or a, we'll have something in the show notes. Exactly. Yeah, everyone. we can get the show notes, put that in there, and people can download the ebook, not the cool. audiobook. And uh, yeah, and um, can see what people think of it. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, when we publish this, guys, check out the show notes and, um, yeah, get stuck in, read more about it. It's been fascinating. And thank you so much for giving up your time. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Joe. Thanks. Bye.